Our adult children are on a very different trajectory than we are. By the time we have adult children and grandchildren, they're really front and center of our consciousness. You know, we may have our own romantic relationships, maybe getting married, divorced, developing our careers, etc. But for most of us, our adult children and grandchildren are really front and center of our consciousness. That's not really true of our adult children. We're really not typically front and center. They're preoccupied with their own relationships or parenting or hobbies or friendships, etc. You know, from our perspective, a lot of it feels really unfair, but from the adult child's perspective, it feels fair to them. So being too preoccupied with that is going to make you more unhappy. Related to that is the use of guilt. Guilt is your enemy. That ship has sailed. Hey everyone, welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Join me, your host, Denise Gorant, as we explore the ins and outs of building healthy relationships with our adult children. Together, we'll speak with experts, share heartfelt stories, and get timely advice addressing topics that matter most to you. Get ready to dive deep and learn to build and nurture deep connections with our adult children. And of course, when to bite our tongues. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. You know, from the day we started this podcast, I wanted to interview the guest we have today. I was actually scared to reach out because he's really one of the most well-known relationship experts, having written articles for the New York Times, the Atlantic, Huffington Post, so many more. He's given talks at the faculties at Harvard, Cornell, almost all academic institutions you could think of. He's also a frequent guest on the Today Show, NPR. He's even been on Sesame Street. Long before folks were talking about relationships with adult children, he wrote one of his first books titled, When Parents Hurt, Compassionate Strategies When You and Your Grown Children Don't Get Along. Most recently, he wrote about estrangement in his book, The Rules of Estrangement. Now, I'm sure many of you know exactly who I'm talking about, and you're right, it's Joshua Coleman. I'm sure many of you have heard him on TV, read many of his articles, but today we're going to talk about two of his many books. The first about compassionate strategies when you and your grown children don't get along, and the second, his newest book on estrangement. But before we start, I'm so excited to announce my guest host today, Kirsten Heckendorf. Since we're not quite ready to announce our new permanent co-host, I've been inviting people to join me as a guest host. I think it's so great to have two perspectives, and today's guest is a great one. Kirsten, tell us a bit about yourself, and then why don't you welcome Dr. Coleman? That'd be great. Thank you. Um, Hi, everybody, and Denise, thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. I think the adult children conversation is not often talked about enough. But yet every walk I go on with my girlfriends and every dinner party, something comes up. When this came up and and I saw that you were looking for somebody, of course, I had to jump on that. And I am thrilled to be here. And I am completely honored today to introduce Dr. Joshua Coleman. Thank you so much for joining us today. First, before I get going, is there anything that we missed in our intro or anything else you would like the audience, our listeners to know about you? No, that's great. I think you've, you've covered it covered it well. So I'm eager to have this conversation with you today. Well, that's wonderful. Well, and let's just kind of dive in. There's a lot to cover here. And let me just add here, we're going to start talking about the first book. The first part of this conversation, I think we'll talk about when parents hurt, compassionate strategies when you and your grown child don't get along. There's so much in there. Of what's in there, what would you pull out that you would say are the two most critical points of this book? 
Um, I think for when parents hurt, the most important thing, and it's continued into my current thinking in my second book, which is the necessity for parents to own their own value as parents. Um, so I have an exercise in there called What I've Done Right as a Parent. I have people write out 10 things that were valuable about them as a parent uh, and to carry it around on a three by five card. This is particularly useful, I think, for mothers. Mothers tend to be, and the research shows us as well, that women tend to be more internalizers, mothers in particular, as fathers uh, internalize with depression, anxiety, self-criticism, regret, guilt, shame, et cetera. And men do that as well, but not nearly in the same way. Men are much more likely to externalize through anger, criticism, hostility, rejection, et cetera. So I think it's particularly useful for for mothers. And so what I commonly say to, to people in my practice is that you have to own the narrative of who you are as a person and as a parent. We can't really cede that to our children because our children have their own agendas. They have a right to their opinion. They have a right to disagree with us. They have a right to have their own narratives about what kind of parents we were. But if we only let them tell us what kind of parents we were, uh, we lose an important source of value and information for ourselves. And seven and children aren't really able to see us very clearly because of their own psychological challenges or who they're married to or their therapist that they're seeing, um, or if there's in the case of a divorce, the power of the, you know, the ex-husband or wife. I think that's critically important. The other thing that I began to touch on in the first book, but developed much more um, in the second book and um, in my more recent writings is just the cultural changes that have happened that raising a children in the past three or four decades is a very different enterprise than it was in prior generations. And so parents who aren't as aware of that, those changes are much more likely to continue to have an estranged or difficult or alienated relationship with their children. Expand on that a little bit, because that does come up quite often. We're so different than our parents in a lot of ways. I would love to know more about more of those cultural changes, what you're seeing. Yeah, no, I think it's the most important part of my work that I that I want to make known. And that is that there's an article I wrote for the Atlantic called A Shift in Family Values is Fueling Estrangement. And one of the things that I talk about in that article is the way that the historian Stephanie Kuhn said marriage changed more in the past three decades than it did in the prior 3,000 years. And the same could be said true of family, a parent-adult-child relationships. And what, what Kuntz meant when she said that was that over the past three or four decades, really in the, the past century, uh, but particularly in the past three or four decades, the individuals have shifted away from honor thy mother and thy father, respect thy elders, families forever. There's much more identitarian, self-esteem-enhancing, uh, mental health-enhancing and protective perspective where relationships are constituted purely on the basis of whether or not that relationship is in line with that person's ideals for their own happiness and self-growth and, and mental health. So that is a new moral framework. The older moral framework were the ones that I was describing, what the sociologist Anthony Giddens calls pure relationships, that today they're pure relationships because they're purely constituted on the basis of whether or not it's in line with our ideals for happiness and growth, which is in contrast to earlier relationships, which are much more derived around what is my role? You know, what it, what does it mean to be a parent or a child? And what are the obligations that kind of cohere from that? So often the generations are really talking past each other because the adult child feels like, well, I don't have to have a relationship with you. I don't owe you anything. I don't care if you were a better parent than my parent was to me, was to you. 
I don't care how much you've invested in me as a, as a child in terms of my development or financially or anything. I don't actually don't owe you anything. And the fact that you made sacrifices for me, if you weren't there for me emotionally in the way that I feel like is important, then I really don't, don't owe you a thing. And so what I'm sort of forever educating parents to do is to get up into the 21st century. I don't mean in a critical way, but just really see that nothing compels an adult child to have a relationship with a parent beyond that adult child's desire to have that relationship. And what that means is that it disempowers the parent and overly empowers, from my perspective, the adult child to set the terms and the rules of engagement with the adult child. So that's kind of the way, you know, sort of a a summary of that. So I, I have a question because that was one of the things that really stood out to me, that whole adage, honor thy father and mother, respect thy elders that you said has moved on. Okay. I'm wondering as us as parents, did we fuel that? When we grew up, you know, you were seen and not heard. I mean, I think there was a little bit in our generation, we were talking more, parents wanted to have the family dinners. I wonder, are boomer parents weak? Were we weak? Are we afraid of our adult children in some way? Are we afraid of losing their affection that we agree to anything? And I guess I also wondered, and you sort of said this, but I, I, you know, it's one thing to say it's changed, but why has it changed? Adult kids, everything's blamed on the parents. Even in your book, I noticed a lot of blame. Parents are either blamed for poor parenting style, either too relaxed or too strict. Adult kids uh, not shy about saying to their parents, you are a terrible parent. I'm going on and on because I want to add one more thing to this. When you said, write your little, what is it, three by five card down. When I read that, and this comes into me thinking, are we weak? Did we create this? I had a hard time doing that. Who am I to say whether I was a good parent? Really, it's my kids. It's like when you're in, you have a job, your boss is going to tell you whether you did a good job. I can't sit there and say, well, I showed up on time. I think the clients like me. You know, who am I to say that? So let's start with, did we cause this? How did this all happen? And really, how do people, are we weak? All these things. I've asked a lot. Do your best. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to answer to the best of my ability. Okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Those are all really okay. important questions. To start with, are we weak? No. I mean, the reality is that the, the Yale political scientist Joseph Hacker talks about the great risk shift that happened in the early mid uh, 1970s or early 1980s. And this is where we shifted to a much more of a neoliberal economy. He calls it the great risk shift because in the, in the period post World War II, uh, up until the mid 1970s, there was an enormous support for parents. There was support for inexpensive college, college loans, grants, et cetera. Other political scientists have caused that, called that era the Great Compression, because there was a compression. Right now, we have one of the highest rates of social inequality than any other country in the world. China might have a higher level than us. But in terms of, in comparison to other Western democracies, we have incredibly high rates of social inequality. And that's because there's been this great risk shift away from helping parents with insurance, uh, with pensions, with union jobs. So, uh, and all this has been shifted onto the backs of parents away from governmental and corporate support. Now, what has that meant? It's meant that parents have had to become, or what do you call them, helicopter parents or tiger mothers are particularly true in the United States and in China and other countries where governments provide so little support. Why? Because parents have to, if they don't do it, then their children aren't going to be able to get through that narrow bottleneck into a successful life. So what has been the effect of that? The effect of that has been made parents much more guilt-ridden, much more anxious, much more involved, much more surveilling, much more intrusive. 
you know, much more concerned about whether or not their kids are really going to be able to have the social and financial capital to make it through this increasingly narrow bottleneck that is life in the United States. But I don't think it's our fault. I think it's the way that our, our political economy has shifted and it's shifted it all into the backs of parents. Now, that has, in fact, overly empowered parents and disempowered children, but I don't know that parents had any other real, real option. Now, that said, Black mothers, for example, are far less likely to be estranged than, than our white mothers, although Black fathers are more likely to be in part because of non-marital childbirth and imprisonment, other sources that, that are disruptive to family life. You don't see as nearly as much of it in Latin American families because of the culture of familism. I don't think that, that we, there's not great research in terms of international statistics about estrangement, but I would assume that in cultures that are more communitarian, more collectivist in, in their nature and their psychology, have a greater emphasis on filial obligation, that you see far less estrangement. So for all of those reasons, uh, I think American parents, parents in the United States are particularly vulnerable to it. So what has changed? So part has been the political economy, part has been rising rates of individualism, where individualism defined as an emphasis on separation, individuation, autonomy, things that we therapists are very preoccupied with <laughs> in ways that I think are problematic. Um, the rise of therapeutic culture, uh, where everybody's got a therapist and their therapists have enormous power. Therapists have basically replaced clergy in terms of helping people make moral frameworks about who to keep in and out of their life. Divorce, in my own research, divorce is a huge uh, cause of, of estrangement in many different ways. Social media as a, as a kind of form of uh, extended kin, where you have people who have absolutely no investment in the family saying, yes, you should cut off that person, you know, whether it's the adult, strange adult children's side saying, oh, best thing I ever did, or it's the parent's side saying, oh, your kids, are, you know, it's these snowflake, overly entitled kids. And, you know, these things have become very much fomenting of, of these very divisive tones, politics and Ipsos. A uh, poll in 2016 found that something like 16% of family members became estranged over the, the election and over politics. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those things have really contributed to, to our div division as a family. I love all this history, but I don't know about you, Kirsten. I want to get to the what to do's part, okay? We're going to talk more about estrangement in a minute, but I want to talk about the adult parent that just feels lonely. And there's a lot of that. The kids maybe don't live in town, or even if they do, they're building their own life. Did interview Carl Pillemer, and he, he talked about intergenerational stake, a psychological term. The parents have more of a, a stake in the relationship than the kids do. So what advice do you give to parents that they're lonely, they don't hear from their kid as often as they want to, they're not estranged. Maybe they worry a little bit about estrangement, but the kids building their life, communication has changed so much. So we called our parents every Sunday or whatever. We didn't expect to text five times a day. Right. What's normal, what's not, and how do we stop feeling this guilt? What's your advice for parents? We need the what to do's, right, Kirsten? <laughs> 100%. Well, I think you're right that, that in some ways, cell phones have made us all, on the one hand, the advantage is you can share pictures and be in contact if you need to. On the other hand, it's just another vehicle to feel rejected or unimportant in your child's mind. If they don't return your text or emails or are in less contact than you want. Um, and I think in part because we have become much more invested in our children and much more available, 
than probably our parents were with us. I mean, today, the career mom spends more time raising her children than the stay-at-home mom did in the 1960s. Oh, my gosh. So I think we have greater expectations of, of closeness. And a study out of the University of Virginia found that people raising children, at least over the past 20 years, and I'm sure it predates that, expect to be best friends with their children. I mean, I had decent loving parents, but I don't think they expected to be my best friend, and I certainly didn't expect <laughs> to be theirs. So we've really upped our expectations of how much closeness that we kind of are entitled to or certainly want. And at the same time, there's been this erosion in terms of how much time we spend with friends or on hobbies or other other kinds of things, what Robert Putnam and Paul Amato talk about. So what this means is that I think a certain percentage of adult children feel overly burdened by the expectations of the parents for closeness and intimacy and our feelings of desire. Um, you know, I have adult children and, and a grandchild, and I've experienced this myself. It's kind of like, you know, my daughter hasn't returned my text all week. Is she mad at me or is she upset with me or something? And I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, your your listeners know this, but but I got interested in this topic because my daughter had cut off contact with me when I was, uh, when she was in her 20s for several years, in part because of my remarrying and having children and her feeling displaced and blessedly were reconciled, have been for, for quite a long time. But that period of time was was nightmare. So for her, it's like if she doesn't respond to a text in a week or so, I'm like, okay, here we go again. What are we, you know, am I estranged or not? So our expectations are really high. And our adult children are in a very different trajectory than we are. By the time we have adult children and grandchildren, they're really front and center of our consciousness. You know, we may have our own romantic relationships, maybe getting married, divorced, developing our careers, et cetera. But for most of us, our adult children and grandchildren are really front and center of our consciousness. That's not really true of our adult children. We're really not typically front and center. They're preoccupied with their own relationships or parenting or hobbies or friendships, et cetera. So in terms of what to do about all of that, well, I think that the advice, you know, I have a, a webinar called The Five Most Common Mistakes of Estranged Parents. But I think the advice holds for non-estranged parents as well, just parents of adult children. The first mistake is to not be too preoccupied with fairness instead of being strategic. From the parent's perspective, it's probably going to feel unfair. Most parents are going to feel like, well, after all I've done for you, or I'm so nice, or I'm so available, <laughs> so psychological, you know. But I after- bought you a dress last week. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's right. And you didn't even have to ask me. Right. <laughs> So, you know, from our perspective, a lot of it feels really unfair, but from the adult child's perspective, it feels fair to them. So being too preoccupied with that is going to make you more unhappy. Related to that is the use of guilt. Guilt is not, guilt is your enemy. That ship has sailed. Give us an example of that. Sure. So, you know, I'm Jewish and um, my my mother's past. God rest. So is Kirsten. So she, you both have a lot of guilt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Greek. I'm going to say I've got almost as much, but let's go. I want an Thank example because sometimes I think parents don't know they're using guilt. Yeah. Well, I'll start with, a, with an example. For a while, I wanted to write an article called The Last, the Last Jewish Mother because you know Jewish mothers are notoriously guilt tripping. Like when I moved out to California from Ohio, occasionally my mother would call me and go, oh, Mr. Fancy Dancy Psychologist, you're too too busy to call your poor mother in Ohio. <laughs> and I mean, we were close enough that that she could do that and I could hear from perspective of affection. But today, those kind of guilt trips are considered coercive. They're considered abusive. It can be considered a form of emotional 
abused. You know, if you, if a parent were to say, oh, you're too busy to call me, you're just, you're, you know, you're just too involved in your career or your marriage or your, you know, you can't make time for me, everything I've done for you. Those are the kinds of statements that would really be considered abusive or coercive. Okay, that makes sense. The third common mistake is to return fire with fire. And again, this goes to the way that the internal well-being of the adult child has become front and center. So if the adult child says something that's provocative or critical or negative to the parent, and the parent responds similarly, well, because the adult child isn't obligated to have a relationship with the parent, it does constrain or restrict the parent's ability to respond without a fear of even more more distance. So that's what I why I think the notion of the changing moral framework is so important that, you know, if you're not obligated to stay close to somebody in the way that you might be in a more communitarian culture or society, then conflict becomes more a representation of your own identity. Well, these I don't have to tolerate abusive uh, behavior. If you're making me feel bad, not only can I cut you out, but I should cut you out because that's a form that's representative of my self-esteem and need to cut myself off from toxic people and develop my own my own boundaries. It's terrible in the sense that that how little parents, how little power parents have to to kind of turn the ship around on their own based on their own feelings. Parents don't it's kind of like what Carl was talking about about the intergenerational stake, the idea that that parents have much more investment in in the relationship and they get much more of their self-esteem and value from the relationship. Whereas for the adult child, is not nearly the same kind. I mean, when I would call my parents or go visit them, I mean, I always knew it meant more to them than it did to me. Again, I was, I'm very blessed by having parents that I actually- Yeah, agree, agree. Liked and loved. I just got done visiting a son in Utah with my my wife. And I felt like by the second day, even though he's like- you know, Done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at least on, the, on his end. He's a sweet kid, so he wouldn't really say that. But, you know, but I felt after two days, I thought, okay, we- this trip was probably a day too long, you know, for them. So, you know, I just think it's it's a different, it's just a different entity for them as than it is for us. One of the the things, you know, we, we're so tied to what our children are doing because of all the things you've already talked about, our investment in them and why I think is really important. We have that investment, but it's very difficult not to be disappointed. You know, we all have these dreams and visions for what our lives with our children should be then there becomes this shame in some cases of those same children. And sometimes it's not just always the same child and it can shift moment to moment, depending on your kids. Yep. That's true too. What would you say to parents to avoid some of that? Well, you know, that saying a mother is only as happy as her least unhappy child is, (laughs) turns out to be true in terms of the research. So we all, I think fathers again, are not, I'm not dissing fathers, but I think fathers have, other sources of identity that they cling to more strongly, such as their independence and their careers and their success. Whereas for mothers, um, the maternal, the identity as a mother is much more front and center. So if a child isn't doing well, if they have mental illness, if they're in a bad marriage, if they're just not thriving, it's just much harder for mothers, A, not to blame themselves or feel ashamed or to, to feel in some ways um, defective that their child is responding in that way or isn't isn't happier or, or that kind of thing. You know, I think there's a certain percentage of things in families that are completely out, out of our control. I mean, you know, after our children are, are grown, we have very little control over their happiness. I mean, if we can afford it, maybe we can pay for their therapy or 
other kinds of things, but we have almost no no control over what they're going to do. So really working on developing your own serenity and accepting the things that you can't change is a key to any form of mental health when you have adult children. Yeah, that's hard to do. It's very hard to do. What advice do you give parents who are in these positions so that they protect themselves a little bit as well? But also, are there specific steps to stop things before they get to that point before some before a child says i'm done i mean there are, are there moments of opportunity in there yeah i think the biggest mistake that parents make which i completely understand is that when the adult child begins to complain to the parent the natural human response particularly as a parent i mean we're all walking wounded when it comes to our parenting right i mean if our kid says you failed me you neglected me you hurt me you know, you weren't a good parent in this way, particularly in some of the language of today. You're a narcissist, you're a borderline, you emotionally abused me, you, you crossed my boundaries, you're a gaslighter, um, all of you're toxic, all of these things. It's very hard for any parent to respond productively to that. But it is useful to see that as an opportunity. And once you kind of can pick yourself up, up off the floor, to see it as an opportunity for a potentially better relationship with the adult child. To see them as raising it as a way to be closer to you, uh, not not to just reject you. Now, a more troubled kid may be just doing it to reject you. You know, a kid who's got who's an addict or an alcoholic and they're out of control, or they've got a personality disorder, or other forms of dysfunction may not be raising it purely, you know, or even primarily as an attempt to have a closer relationship. I mean, I would argue that even those kids who are more troubled probably, you know, in some part of them hope hope for it to be to help the relationship, but that may not be their primary motivation. The primary motivation may be just purely defense against their own kind of inner chaos. Um, but a kid who's, you know, sort of more reasonably healthy, if they raise that, even if they do it in a really unhealthy, unproductive way, for the parent to to try to go deeper, to try to empathize, to take responsibility, which is sort of the big thing that I emphasize in, in my books and writings, I encourage parents to write a letter of amends where they do take responsibility and they find the kernel, if not the bushel, of truth in the child's complaints. And they sidestep the ways that it makes them feel. And they don't defend and they don't explain and they don't justify. They just purely from the perspective of, of trying to, to understand and go deeper. And the reason that that often works, it doesn't always, because I can't, there's nothing that always works. But the reason that it often works is because it's in line with the child's ideals about what they want for a happy life, which is a much more psychologically intensive form of engagement where people take responsibility and talk about their traumas and show empathy and compassion and the like. So I think those parents who are able to pretty quickly get on that bandwagon I think they have a much better chance of deepening the relationship, removing their relationship off the shoals of you know, absolute tragedy of estrangement uh, than those who just stay defense. I don't know that there's very many parents who don't respond initially defensively, myself included, sure. A really early episode, I interviewed a psychologist I just loved, and this sounds very similar. I should let listeners know that in this first book of his, and then we're going to jump to your most recent book because that's important, but you give a lot of examples of what a child might say and what you're tempted to say and what you should say. And the psychologist I talked to always said, agree and no buts. And you sort of do the same thing. So one said, you're always so impatient. You're tempted to say, oh, poor baby, I'm sorry that I can't be more perfect for you. But you really need to say is, yeah, I really can be impatient. 
I see how that comes across or came across as uncaring. So once again, you suddenly bring the whole dynamic of the conversation down. The child might raise their voice and say, you know, I'm sick of this. Once I heard that, I even use that if my kid says, I don't want to have pizza tonight. Oh gosh, I agree. We've had pizza a lot. (laughs) And what are your thoughts about what we should do? And they always say, oh, let's just have pizza. It immediately deflects against everything if you can put that into practice. I use it with my husband. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Oh, no, it's a great marital tool. There's no question about that. Right. So before we get to the estrangement, I'm going to ask the listener question, but Kirsten, is there anything else you want to ask about the relationship thing before we jump into the rules of estrangement? Uh, The only other question I have is about the mismatch temperaments. I've noticed Mm. that in parenting of just my three kids, um, that the things that worked with one do not work with the others. But then there is the temperament piece that comes in where I feel that I'm playing multiple roles and I, my brain is constantly scrambling about, okay, which kid is this? Okay, what do I need? Because they need different responses from me. Um, and, I've, yep. and I've learned that, but it's hard. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. There's no question. What would you say to the different temperament piece? Well, I think that the notion of temperaments is really important because we still have this sort of blank slate myth that, you know, children are born with a blank slate and, and it's 100% up to parents to, to sort of shape them into who they're going to be. And the research shows that parenting only counts for about 20% of how children turn out. You know, more important are genes neighborhood, peer group, siblings, cohort, the work of, you know, Gene Twenge says that when you grow up is also critically important to, to how you you turn out socioeconomic level. So, and a, and a related part of the genes part is, I'm sure you've heard the acronym OCEAN to describe the, the parts of personality that, that are inherited. OCEAN stands for openness to experience. C is conscientiousness. E is extroversion. A is agreeableness. And N is neuroticism. Um, so our kids are born with a certain tendency already in a certain direction. So I think that you're right that we do have to find ways to accommodate their psychology. And that for, I mean, for my twin boys, one was very sensitive to anything that sounded remotely critical. And the other one was like, you could throw a bat at him and he'd be like, you know, he would just dodge it and keep watching TV. So, you know, so you have to develop these your own styles um, with the child based on who they are and what what their needs are. So I don't, I'm not providing much much guidance about that. <laughs> this sort of, it's just hard work. It's just hard work. <laughs> we get a number of listener questions and I always try to fit one into every episode. And I have to be very respectful for the types of questions I get. And I'm as a as a therapist, you probably get a lot of different kinds of questions too. Questions. So someone wrote, she loves her adult kids and enjoys having them over for dinner when they are available. They want to bring their dogs all the time. The dogs are their children. She does not like their dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Does she have to choose between her kids and their dogs? Is there another option for her? Well, I mean, it depends, um, you know, whether she has a good reason to not have the dogs come, you know, so let's say, for example, the dogs have long nails and she's got really nice new hardwood (laughs) floors. I mean, I think she'd probably have to have a good reason to say it because I think people are really identified with their dogs. It's sort of like mm-hmm. saying you can't bring your kid. So it wouldn't be something I would necessarily recommend unless there's a really good reason. If she was allergic to the dogs or or they constantly barked at the neighbors and you couldn't get a word in edgewise. I mean, those would be reasons why 
one might one might say say no to that. Okay, let's get to estrangement. First, I'm just going to ask a general question. This whole idea of estrangement just seems to be everywhere lately, and not just with parents and adult kids. In my own circle of friends, well, I see a lot of parents and adult kids. What the heck's going on? Why are we talking about this so much? Is it a trend? And I know you also have some reasons why children choose to cut their ties. Well, I do think it's a trend. I do think it's on the rise for all the reasons that I gave earlier. One study recently showed that some 26% of fathers are estranged from their kids, especially. 26%? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, are you talking about fathers that might be in jail or what? Just everything all together. Right. They might be in jail. They might be, you know, have never married the mother, which is also an increased. Right. Okay. Okay. One out of four dads, that's still pretty bad. And 40% of children are born out of um, out of wedlock these days. And we know that that's, that's a very old fashioned term for a psychologist to use. I, know. I don't know. What the, <laughs> I'm trying to find the right, the more appropriate. I, I can see it on your face, <laughs> but go ahead. It's going to go old fashioned here uh, for sake of brevity. Um, so, so it's absolutely on the rise. I think the, you know, it's also much more in the news, I think, because of the, because of Prince Harry and all the drama. Oh Yeah. That's I think that keeps it in the news, and I think that allows more more coverage about it. But you know, I think it's a lot of it has to do with the rise of therapeutic culture and how much there's um, not only from self help, but also from TikTok and Instagram and these so called influencers who are talking about toxic family and setting boundaries and when to cut off a parent and all of those things. I think make it all much more part of our culture. And yet, you know, Carl Pilmer said. When he interviewed people really late in life, and he said he would ask them, what would you have changed? You know, they didn't say they wanted to be more successful at their jobs. They didn't say they wanted more money. They said they wish they would have reconciled with a family member. And I look sometimes at these young people that are maybe being guided by the TikTok. I love how you said so-called influencers and taking that road and not realizing the impact on their life in the long term. Yeah, we're a society that has incredibly high rates of loneliness and atomization and rising rates of mental illness. I read a study recently that said that Gen Z kids, those born after 1995, have less contact with grandparents than any other generation that's alive. So we're becoming more and more isolated. Gee, I wonder why we have these high rates of depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation and loneliness, because we're we're making it seem like the path to happiness is through our own individuality and identity. Well, it turns out that's not a particularly stable entity, that it really best foundation for happiness are our relationships and relationships with family. Now, that doesn't mean that people are obligated to, to be available to parents who are truly destructive and you know hostile. And sh- right, right. Well, that brings up my one of my big questions in the estrangement area, and that is the childhood trauma. The way our kids talk about trauma is such a different definition, at least for me, um, what, how I was raised understanding trauma. Yeah. So I'm curious what you see going on with trauma. I don't know if you're still practicing. What are you seeing? Yeah, no, I am still practicing. No, I think the whole notion of trauma has become very divisive between parents and adult children. You know, there's a study by the Australian psychologist, Nick Haslam, where he talks about the notion of concept creep. And what he said was in the past three or four decades, there's been this enormous expansion over what we are willing to label harmful, abusive, neglectful, or traumatizing behavior. And then you've got 
Bessel's book. What's it called? The Body Keeps the Score. That's like seems to be it's like a bit on the bestseller list for you know the past decade or so. So everybody thinks that they've been traumatized. There's a, a saying by the Israeli sociologist Eva Eluz who said, "Today our lives are plotted backwards. What's a dysfunctional family? It's a family where your needs weren't met. How do you know your needs weren't met by looking at your present condition?" And the reason I think that's such a an insightful summary is that today younger adults are coming into adulthood or they're already in adulthood and they're feeling depressed or anxious or have low self-esteem or low confidence or problems with relationships or success. And they're being invited by their therapists in the larger culture to look back into their childhoods and understand why they have the issues that they have. Now, fair enough. It's certainly part of my, you know, psycho- my work to all certainly take a good family history, but they're often making much more out of parental problems or behaviors than are determinative of, of their who they really are as a person. That's why I think it's really important for us to emphasize as therapists, well, yeah, parents are partly responsible for who you are, but also genetics are more important, cohorts more important, siblings, you know, there are all these other influences, random good luck, random bad luck. But in the age of trauma, people are invited to do this reverse engineering. Well, I've got these issues. And you'll see books, self-help books like that. People who've interviewed me, frankly. Uh, and you really look at the book. Well, did you have, do you have this kind of experience? Are you anxious? Do you find yourself having problems making friends or not feeling confident? Probably means you had emotionally immature parents, or it probably means that, you know, you had experiences, you had, uh, you have an insecure attachment to your, your parents. So there's this, they're invited to do this reverse engineering, which, you know, on the one hand could be innocent, but then the second part of that is, you know, then you should cut that person out because they traumatized you. And if you didn't owe them anything before, you certainly don't owe them anything now because they traumatized you. So I think the notion of trauma is, is hugely problematic. Now, that said, are there children who are traumatized? Absolutely. And there's many, many pathways to it. But the other part about traumatic experiences that isn't well discussed is that on average, people who've experienced a trauma, only 10% of them have PTSD. And only 25% who have more severe traumas have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So again, you can have traumatic experiences, and it still may not be very determinative of who you are and become as a person. That as humans, I think the bigger story is that we're resilient, not that we're these fragile creatures who are completely buffeted about by these traumatic forces that become determinative of who we are. Very interesting. So you went through divorce. You lost touch with your daughter or were estranged from your daughter. And I know you offer steps in your book, and I'm sure you use some of them. What are the steps you took, and what are the steps that a parent can take when they feel they are estranged? You know, hopefully they're working towards repair. If you can say it in a concise way that you would suggest to parents, go ahead. Well, the first is to to not do all the things that we're tempted to do. You know that I talked about earlier. The first is don't defend, don't explain, don't justify, don't guilt trip, don't get mad. I, you know, if you can avoid doing that, then you're already on a much better better path. But the things are, that I was talking about in the amends letter, take responsibility, listen openly, try to support your child, telling you what their, their complaints are. If you can't agree to, because sometimes adult children will completely rewrite history, at least from the parent's perspective, they'll say, well, you emotionally abused me. And the parent feels like, that's emotional abuse. You should have seen my dad. you know. But it's far better for the parent to say something like, well, it's clear that I have significant blind spots as a parent that I, I wasn't aware that that felt emotionally abusive to you or traumatizing to you for that matter. But I'm glad you told me. Uh, it's certainly something I can work on either in my own therapy 
or, you know, if you're open to doing family therapy or going forward, will you let me know if I do it? I'm glad that you're, you're telling me. In other words, encouraging the, the complaint rather than trying to push it away and being defensive is the, I think those are the primarily important entities towards it. What do you do when they're not talking to you? The amends letter that I encourage parents to write is to always start with something like, I know you wouldn't have cut off contact unless you felt like it was the healthiest thing for you to do. So again, you're right away putting it in terms of their their psychology and the more egalitarian mm-hmm. perspective. And if you know what the reasons are, then you can, because maybe the, the, the adult child has tried up to that point to tell the parent and the parent hasn't been, they've only been defensive, you know, or negative. Mm-hmm. So to try to take responsibility and acknowledge things. These are true about me that you, you're right. I, I was whatever, impatient, overly critical, not available. And I could see how that could have been impactful to you. These are things that I am open to working on. I hope you'll let me know. If you want to just write me and tell me more about your thoughts or feelings, I promise to listen uh, in order to learn and not in any way to defend myself. So I encourage parents to write that kind of a letter and then do some kind of a brief follow-up six to eight weeks later. But then if they get nothing back, my first book, where parents heard, I kind of encouraged parents to keep reaching out, but increasingly, particularly if it's a fully grown adult. I mean, I would, you know, with a with a minor, I would still encourage parents to keep reaching out. But an adult who's 25, 20, you know, they're grown, not grown into their brains till they're 26. But if you're getting nothing back, A, or if your child's threatening you with restraining orders, which happens, or every time you send a gift or a letter, it gets sent back to you, you just have to assume that things are way too inflamed for anything productive to occur. So in those situations, I encourage parents to just let the line go cold completely. No birthday, no holiday, nothing for at least a year. Because from the adult child's perspective, they could feel like you're respecting them more. They may respect you more for uh, not continuing to just throw good energy after bad. That old saying, how can I miss you if you never go away, is sometimes true in family relationships. It, not reaching out to them may cause them, give them the freedom to become more self-reflective, like, oh, my mom hasn't reached out to me in six months. That's unusual. Why is that? Oh, that's right. I wrote her a no contact letter. Do I really need not to be in contact with her? Let me think about it. So it invites more self, self-reflection. So that's kind of how I think about all that. Well, that kind of touched upon at what point should a parent give up? When you talk about reconciliation therapy, is it successful? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I've only heard about it in terms of with young children. I have not heard about it with adult children. Yeah, I mean, it's very successful if I can get the adult child to participate, but that's the hardest part. You know, I've been interviewed by like five different television production companies that think, oh, I have this idea about doing a segment on healing estranged relationships. And I'm like, well, great. I could send you 100 parents right now. Good luck getting an adult child who wants to be on the show because for the adult child, it's working for them. So if I can get the adult child into the room with the parent, I have a really high success rate because I can support the adult child and what they need to say. And I can help the parent to say what they need to say in a productive way. And I can also prepare both of them about what it's going to look like. But the hardest part is getting the adult child to actually participate. You see that once those children have their own kids, is that a moment that there might be an opening to reach out? It can be for some adult children, particularly if they're married to somebody who says, look, I don't, you know, I want my children to have grandparents, so you're going to have to fix this. That can be a moment. Uh, but for others, you know, they get the grandchildren are collateral damage of the estrangement. And the adult child will say, well, if it's not good for me, it's not good for my children. You know, I think there's plenty of people who weren't great parents who were fantastic grandparents. 
So I think that's another tragedy of our mo- the current moment that we're in. But but typically, and this research bears this out, that if an adult child cuts off contact with a parent, they also cut off contact with grandparents, even grandparents who are loving and involved, who are like taking care of the kids for three days a week, or who you know had the the parent and the grandchildren live with them for two years during COVID, and so. I'm sorry, but it all sounds so selfish to me. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just old school and I apologize. We're going to wrap up, but I want to talk about wills. You don't advocate that you write the child out of the will, right? That's right. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to any parent, particularly the parents I work with, who've been really talk about emotional abuse. Some of these adult children are really almost cruel in their rejection of the parent. The parent can feel like, well, why would I give to them what I would have same amount that I would give to them, have given to them if we were still in contact? And I think there's a number of different ways to think about that. One is what is your like what do you want your legacy to be? A. B, long after we're gone. I mean, my parents, again, I was blessed with good parents. So the ways that I remember them are affectionately, but they had done something in the will that was really hurtful to me, even if they thought it was justified, um, that would stay with me. It would form part of my my psychology. I'm not saying it would be a trauma per se, but it would affect me. And I feel like it's part of our legacy as parents to think into the grave about our ability as parents and our behavior as parents. Third, you know, in the same way that parents do the best that they can when, when we're raising our children, I think adult children who cut off the parent, even those who are mean to the parent, they're also kind of doing the best that they can. You know, a kid has mental illness. Is it their fault? Should they be punished mm-hmm. if they're not strong enough to push back against a husband or wife who says, choose them or me, or they're not sort of a whatever enough to not be influenced by the other parent? Case of a divorce, should they really be punished for that? I don't think so. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that parents are obligated to give their child everything that they would have given them. I mean, some, you know, some parents have tons of money and I could see why they wouldn't necessarily want to give their child every penny in the way that they might have if they would have. But but I think to cut a child out of a will is such a hurtful, rejecting thing to do that that I think it's 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 you know it, it goes against the idea of that we're we're parenting into the grave. So is it sort of like two wrongs don't make a right? <laughs> well, it's certainly that. Yeah, it, it it I don't think. You know, I've had parents say, well, I'm not doing it as a, you know, my goal isn't to be punitive. It's like, well, I don't know what your goal is exactly, but it's going to be experienced as punitive by your child. And even if your child wasn't able to reconcile with you, it's kind of like what you were saying about what Carl Pelimer had said, some adult children that I worked with, the parent died in the process of not my working with them, but I was working with the parents and, and one of the parents died. And the adult child was like, but, but I was about to reach out or I was eventually going to reach out. And now I can't, I feel so guilty. So a a lot of adult children, I assume, you know, are going to feel some feelings of regret. And I feel like it's a parental obligation to to insulate them a little bit from that, from those some of those feelings. Now, some parents would say, well, they should feel regret. And I feel like it's reasonable to feel like they should feel some some degree of regret, but not not from a position of being punished, from a position of their own self-reflection. And I think that if a parent is generous and loving in the will, despite having been abused or neglected or hurt, that's a pretty powerful message from the grave as well. So I really love that. And I love that you said they're doing the best that they can. Yeah. Because I think that all of us as parents, and Kirsten, I'm sure, well, tell me if you agree or not, but we try so hard. And I always say to my friends, unless again, really significant cases of mental instability or we all we've never done it before we right. all try our best you really hit me with that thing it's almost like compassion for the child situation too 
and they're trying their best. I really love that. That really resonated with me. Thank you. That was great. You know, we don't get a manual on this and, um, right, right. you know, we all are doing the best we can. I once a parent, always a parent. Yep. I think that this will thing falls right into that category. I love the idea of, yes, I'm just going to evenly split whatever I have with all my kids, regardless of where they are and what my relationship, I think that's a beautiful gift. I haven't stopped loving you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Even if, even if you stopped loving me, I didn't stop loving you. And to your point, Kristen, that the compassion for yourself. I mean, the advantage of writing an amends letter, paradoxically, is it actually invites more compassion for yourself. It's kind of a way of saying, "Yeah, I, I these are I did I am flawed as a human being. These are my flaws. I'm sorry. I, I could see how they impacted you. And actually, what stays in the dark grows in the dark. The more that we insist that we were great, perfect parents, the negative feelings feel. The more that we can just kind of go, "Yeah, I, I could see how that was hurtful or difficult or hard on you. Or even if I can't understand, I'm glad you." Totally, it actually invites more more self compassion than trying to pretend that we were perfect and got everything right and you know don't deserve anything that we're being handed. Right. So before we close, I always ask our guests to leave our listeners with two or three takeaways. If they take anything away from this conversation, what do you want them to take away? Well, the first is to own your own narrative of who you are as a parent and as a person. A. B. To forgive yourself for whatever mistakes that you made parenting. Uh, doesn't occur in a void. And as parents, we're all in some ways deeply influenced by our own genetics, our own childhoods, the moment of time that we're raising our children, what the parenting culture is when we're raising our children. And and the, the third piece is just to highlight what, we, what we've been talking about, that in the same way that we did the best that we could and deserve compassion, our children are doing the best that they can and deserve compassion, even when we hate how they're treating us. Perfect. Listen, thank you so much for giving us this time today. Kirsten, it was great having you on with me. Thank you for having me. So I thank both of you very much. We'll keep reading about you, seeing you on TV, Dr. Coleman. Keep it going because you're saying a lot of important things. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It was, a, it was really good to talk to both of you. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me. It is so good to get other perspectives and yours were terrific. And thank you again to Dr. Coleman. I don't know about all of you, but my main takeaway was that we as parents of adult children need to lower our expectations and take the high road. What did you take away? Let us know by emailing us at biteyourtonguepodcast at gmail.com or join the conversation on our social media. Just visit us on Facebook or Instagram. We really want to hear from you. And for more information on Dr. Coleman, you can visit his website, drjoshuacoleman.com. On his website, you'll find all of his books, many seminars he offers, and he also has a newsletter you can sign up to receive. And again, a huge thank you to Connie Gorant Fisher, our audio engineer. I can't tell all of you enough how much she makes the magic happen. And in the meantime, before you listen again, remember... Sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.